0: I'm Clarabelle Ortega, author of Ghost Squad, and I'm Kat Cho, author of Wicked Fox,
1: and this is Right or Die. How has your week been?
0: Um, my week's been good. Uh, I had my first school visit yesterday, which was really nice. How was it? It was really good. I was, I met with the National Honor Society. Well, the National Honor Society organized it and it was them plus, but anybody could come. So it was like a big room of kids, high school kids, which is older than like my target audience for my books. But they were so nice and they were so funny and they asked me tons of questions, which I feel like that's like how, you know, it went well.
1: Oh, yeah. If Thank they ask,
0: should. yeah, if they ask you a lot of questions, because like they care. And then, of course, a bunch of them followed me on social media after and they found my Snapchat, which you're going to be really disappointed because I'm never on there. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I know that you're never on there. I have to literally text you to be like, I Snapchatted you something. Yeah, yeah, because, well, I don't have notifications for any social media. That's why. So unless I purposely go into that app, then I, I can't, I, I don't know who's messaged me or who's liked what. I have no idea. But, yeah, they somehow found me, even though I didn't give them my handle. Little sneaks. But um, <laughs> it, it was good. It was really good. It was funny. Um, They loved my memes. I couldn't really have asked for a better first Ghost Squad school visit. So I'm, I'm very pleased. I'm excited to do more now.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited for you to do more, too. I mean – I am not surprised. I feel like you get along with children well.
0: I do. I do get along well with children. And I like speaking. Like, I love public speaking. Yeah. So it's a good combination for me. I don't, like, before, my boyfriend was like, are you nervous? And I was like, no. I love talking about myself <laughs> in front of people literally more than anything on pl- this planet. So yeah. this is actually great. <laughs> I can't with you. Sometimes I honestly cannot. The only way it could have been better is if I was in a full length gown. That's the only thing that could have with gloves. Why? Why? Well, because then then I look fancy, you know? Oh my gosh.
1: I can't.
0: You're so ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. How about you? How was your week?
1: It was good. I am drafting a new project. Uh, It has kind of a tight deadline, tighter than probably any deadline I've ever had before but it's kind of nice because it's I I feel like this isn't actually that abnormal in when it comes to publishing I feel like some deadlines are just you know a couple of months and some of them are six months so it's nice to just get used to it and get back in the grind and get my brain into drafting mode because I feel like even when your day-to-day is just sitting in front of a desk if you're doing other activities like I spent the last three months revising and that felt completely different than drafting or when like the two months leading up to Wicked Fox coming out, I was at my desk a lot. I was answering lots of emails and I was like answering blog interviews and things like that and doing my own promo, but that felt completely different too. So just because I'm like in my apartment on my laptop, like my brain is working differently and that gets a lot of getting used to because like in old jobs I was in, it was pretty standard what I would do, like, I would get to my desk, and I would do data entry or analysis, and I had, like, very set to do's, and it wasn't, I didn't have to shift my brain, but I definitely have to do that with my author career, so it gets, it takes a lot of getting used to, but I think I'm getting into it, a groove of it, hopefully.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel that. I think sometimes, it's weird how, like, When you want to do something, in terms of, like, you want to draft or work on a certain project, like, for me, my brain wants to do, like, the opposite thing. (laughs) (laughs) Your brain is, like, a belligerent teenager. Seriously. Like, it's, like, you're supposed to be revising right now. My brain was, like, "Mm, but I want to draft now. It's, like, a (laughs) big jerk.
1: (laughs) Such a jerk.
0: (laughs) What a jerk. No, I totally
1: yeah I totally get it, but no it's good- i mean honestly, the fact that I have a deadline is really amazing so i I love that but
0: I like yeah. that i i I like celebrating the the little good things you know we sometimes yeah. take for granted.
1: oh for sure, for sure i mean i am since I'm a full time writer I have to like pay for my own health insurance and stuff, and I was just like complaining to my sister about how expensive American health care is. Ugh. And then I was like that's fine I'll just sell another book it's fine. And <laughs> she was like, uh, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "No, I really am okay. This is just my life now. I have to like, you know, hustle for what I got, but I like what I have, so it's worth it at the end."
0: Yeah, it's 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 no joke. We need to fix healthcare really badly. I feel like it it could really help people who are creatives and just people who are who, who use gigs for work, right, which is, like, a big thing now. Like, a lot of people yeah. are freelancers. Um, mm-hmm. And those of us in the States, it's not easy.
1: It really isn't, yeah. I mean, and just the way that, like, new companies and new industries are cropping up now, a lot of millennials and Gen Z are, you know, be are a part of the gig economy more than ever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have to change how we do these things. But, you know, that's a <laughs> that's a different, longer conversation. <laughs> but, yeah. We actually have uh, some AMAs. Yes. we want to do catch up. Let's do it. Let's, let's catch up on AMAs. Okay. Um, I'll read the first one. Go for it. It said, hey, ladies, so I'm curious. When is Kat going to interview Claribel? I only <laughs> asked because <laughs> in Kat's interview, Claribel said, quote later and then <laughs> smiley emoji and kissy face emoji.
0: <laughs> later just like later period is such a claribel thing to say <laughs>
1: like when's that gonna happen later,
0: later. <laughs> eventually Don't, no follow-ups goodbye <laughs> eventually it depends all Clarabelisms. <laughs> um we are going to interview me my episode is gonna come out the week that ghost squad comes out so april April. 6th will be and we're we're toying with the idea of making it a live episode i don't know if it's actually gonna work out for us to do it it might be a little bit nutso um but we're talking about it i think if maybe if you can come up here oh yeah and then we can record at my place and do like a live YouTube thing. And like, my only thing is like, what if nobody watches? <laughs> then I'm gonna be oh my sad. God, I, <laughs> I, I always think that. But at the end of the day, I don't know. Like, even
1: if it's only three people, then it's three more people than I would have talked to that day. <laughs> That's
0: true. That's true. Um, I yeah, guess we we'll can force the writer cult to all watch. Be like, you have to, yeah. or we're never speaking to you again.
1: <laughs> Guaranteed, twelve watch watchers. <laughs>
0: yeah. But um, yeah. um, but yeah. So definitely April sixth will be will be the day. It, you know what I was thinking also, not to like go out in a long ass tangent about this, but wouldn't it be funny if we recorded until midnight when Ghost Squad was officially out and we did like a New Year's Eve countdown? <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, that would be hilarious. <laughs> we could do that. But then, really, no. Like, who's gonna watch until midnight? Not me. People I would fall. I'd I'd fall asleep on on live TV. <laughs>
1: that's on that's your issue i feel like people on the west coast might watch it's only like what nine o'clock for them that's
0: true that's true
1: well yeah
0: we'll see we haven't decided but definitely look out for that episode and also coincidentally that week is the anniversary of write or die i believe it's a three-year anniversary of the podcast three year are you sure i think so year. -year two-year anniversary uh yeah, two years. I'm just I'm just kidding. It's the two year anniversary of the podcast, in <laughs> the same week. Writer um, Ghost Squad comes out. Uh, so it's a big week. It's an exciting yeah. week. Twenty eighteen Claire was psychic. I was. I planned it. She knew. She knew. <laughs> okay. Okay. Next question. Yeah. Um. So this one's for me. Uh, it's from Amy. Hey, Amy. Clarabelle, I'd love to hear more about the journey to your graphic novel deal. How did the deal happen? Did you go in with a full script or a proposal? Did you already have an illustrator attached? How many graphic novels have you written before? What was the conversation with Susie like? Has she always known you wanted this to happen? And how did you fit it into your other project timelines? Um, So my graphic novel situation was pretty cool. I actually hadn't written a graphic novel before, but I had always wanted to. Susie knew that sort of like in passing, we never had like a sit down conversation, like just about graphic novels. It's just something that I mentioned in passing. And then what ended up happening was um, Kiara, who is my editor over at First Second, she reached out to Susie um, because she had an idea about a graphic novel that had to do with uh, hair because she's Dominican just like I am and I don't know if you've ever been to New York City or anywhere that has a Dominican population at all but we love salons we love to straighten our hair and we love to get rid of our curls it's like our favorite thing to do there's a lot of anti-black stuff that goes on with that that's not so great but anyway Kiara wanted to have a graphic novel that sort of explored that dynamic about a little girl who's sort of struggling with her hair, um, and her natural curls. And she found me on Twitter. She read Ghost Squad. She loved Ghost Squad. And she wanted something that had sort of the same middle grade feel to it. So we worked up a proposal. I wrote, um, a really detailed outline. And then we went to acquisitions and they bought the book. Yay. And then the writing process We didn't have an illustrator attached originally. Um, Once Kiara actually found our illustrator on her own and then the way that the whole script happened it was my first graphic novel. So the way we did it was Kiara actually sent me a bunch of scripts of graphic novels that had already been published and she sent me those books plus others in the mail like before so I had the scripts and the graphic novels alongside of it so I could see sort of how the how the author laid everything out how they explained the the art direction to the illustrator if they weren't illustrating themselves and I used those as sort of like my guideline to write risos in terms of how I fit it into my other projects, I was pretty much done with Go Squad by the time it was time to work on Riso's, so I really didn't have anything that I had to focus on that I had a deadline for, which was lucky. I was still working on two other, like, personal projects uh, that weren't sold anywhere, so I had to sort of balance all three of those, because I need to be working on more than one thing at one time, or my brain sort of short-circuits, it's not good, so... I just sort of gave myself a a schedule. I had a timeline and I turned in my first draft of it a couple weeks ago. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much how it went. And I I believe that it was the first graphic novel that Susie had ever sold. I'm not 100% sure that might be wrong. Susie, don't be mad at me. But I think I remember (laughs) that it was her personal first graphic novel. So it was sort of a learning experience for both of us. I really love writing graphic novels, though. Like, throughout the learning process, I was really intimidated at first because I had never done it. And it is way different than writing a normal novel, like a regular, like, novel. But I'm a very visual writer, so just writing it something that felt more like a script was really, really fun for me. And I definitely want to write a whole lot more. So hopefully this is just the first of many.
1: That's awesome. And also, I love your stories about, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler for when we do our interview <laughs> of you, how you got your book deals. But I, I like your story of like your publishing journey because you went through actually a lot of things and yeah. you're kind of like the poster girl for like publishing is not a standard situation. It's not a standard journey. Things happen when they happen and you have to like take advantage of the opportunities you're given. And also be open and ready for them as well. Put yourself out there. And I think you do that
0: really, really well. So thanks. Story. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been a lot of ups and downs, but, but we're, we're here now. And we're that's here. What matters. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, our final question
1: is long, but it's, it's got a lot of interesting questions. It's like point question points in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let me just get through this. All right. It's from Olivia. She said, hello, I've heard a lot of authors using street teams to help with marketing, but what do street teams do and how do authors organize them? On another marketing related note, what were the specific marketing responsibilities that you took on for your books versus the marketing that the publishing house provided? I hear a lot about authors doing their own marketing and I'm curious about what a specific breakdown of the things they did on their own time and the things that their houses might provide look like. Since both of you work in publishing, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we do, adjacently. Yeah. Publishing adjacent, yeah. Um, I would also love to hear about how you feel about the publishing, writing, work-life balance. I would love to hear from Kat how the process of her second contracted book is different from Wicked Fox. And my last question, she says, sorry, there are so many, would be... (laughs) Olivia's
0: No Z. (laughs)
1: Olivia <laughs> has a lot of questions. Would it be possible to set up some sort of critique partner connection within the community of write or die? I think that would be so cool if possible. And I'm fine being mentioned. Oh, she said she's fine being mentioned by name. But I already mentioned you, Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> she ends it with love this podcast so much. Thank you for all the work you do. Yay. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. Let's take it piece by piece,
0: though. Right. Okay. All right. Street team so okay so we actually fielded some of these answers from our writing group because i've never done a street team and neither has cat so um we don't know all right and we're not gonna just make stuff up Um, i mean we could we could make it up but street teams meet in an alleyway and then they have a dance battle they throw (laughs) books at each other's head whoever passes out first is the winner um okay passes
1: out for his
0: <laughs> Yeah, I had to throw a plot twist in there. Alright, oh, right. that's not true. That's not true. Um, so here's one of the answers. So uh Street Teams, they're a group of readers and bloggers who help an author promote a specific title leading up to its release by posting on social media with tweets, Instagram photos, fan art, and various fun. In return, the group is a bit of a community. There's games and prizes like swag contests where sub teams can compete with one another like a pre-order campaign it's a lot of work it's not that it can't be done for a second book but it's definitely worth weighing your time investments and financial in regards to mailing and swag and then it says i divided them all randomly into three teams they earned points it was one point per tweet three points per insta post, five to ten points for blog posts and special content i counted them all because of hashtags um, so you had to tag a specific hashtag and then your team, um, whichever that was. The street team lasted three months, so there were three contests and the prizes were cooler each month. So they say hey, we'll decide when they're
1: cooler now. We'll <laughs> decide. decide <anyway.
0: laughs> um, and then the final part of this answer is I gave away a large portion of my Arcs to those in the group as well, and I gave the list to my publicists so they'd have an easier time getting approved on NetGalley if they were U.S. Canada based, as well as to my UK publicists who sent a lot of UK members' arcs. Wow, that's intense. I mean, I'm, lear- I'm like learning as, yeah. <laughs> as you're reading the answers. Yeah, that's a um, lot. We, we
1: also have an answer from another person in our critique group who hasn't run one but was a part of a street team. Mm. And they said that from their perspective, it really is all about that genuine fan experience, enthusiasm, sorry, genuine fan enthusiasm. Those are the people signing up for these things. So those are the readers that you will, that you know will be with you. Obviously there are more, but these are the ones making themselves visible to you and saying, I'm with you. That's how it was when I was in street teams, seeing authors do it for certain books and not for themselves as just their author brand has been interesting, but they understand why they're doing most of all of this themselves. Oh, they understand why, since they're doing most of all of this themselves. So it seems like our second friend was in street teams for the author themselves, as opposed to individual books.
0: Oh, wow. And they see that
1: it shifted towards individual books, which actually is really interesting. Huh. I, yeah. I mean, I've only seen it for individual books as well. Or series. I have, like, I, I have, like, very vague feelings about street teams, because I've never run one myself for been on a street team. And at first I was like, oh, well, wouldn't you want what don't you think that people would sign up for a street team because they already know the author's writing? So does it work for a debut book? That was my first thought when I thought of doing it myself. And so in my mind, I was like, maybe I'll just wait until I have a book come out. And then once I have like fans of my actual writing, then I'll be like, hey, you want to be part of my street team? But I have seen some people do it for their debuts with some success. I think it is mostly about people who are just like really enthusiastic about the concepts or the author's presence that they already have or about reading in general, uh, which I actually really love. It's kind of just like, hey, we all love something. Let's love it together and in coordination, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which I think is kind of like a very nice and pure way of looking at publicity and looking at publishing
0: Mm, yeah I think street teams are really cool and I I feel like if you have the bandwidth and like the the funds to do it and it it doesn't overwhelm you then like why not I I would say like probably just like from from like a marketing standpoint in terms of like my own instinct I would say it probably doesn't move tons of books or anything like that um, yeah. But it probably does definitely help to foster more engagement and to make the book look like it's getting more hype. You know, I think that there was one book. Was it? Hold on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check right now. Give me a sec. Yeah. So it's Bridget Kemmerer um, series. Oh, Bridget. Yeah. I yeah. love her book. So, so her book she, so her, her like street team are called like hashtag curse breakers and When I guess she did like a coordinated like um like social media blitz with them and like they would all use the hashtag and it was really good and it was trending and I feel like it got a lot of attention. I feel like it it, the way that she did it and the people that she had in the in the group were really good. So it it turned out well, I think it just sort of depends on a lot of different factors. Um, I personally don't think I could do a street team. I think I would get overwhelmed. Yeah, especially with. especially with like mailing stuff like i can't do it i can't and then i'm gonna feel bad and then it's just gonna be like a whole thing so i feel like if if your personality is such that you can juggle a lot of things especially like towards when your book is coming out things get more intense um then definitely do it but also know your limitations like you don't have to do a street team if you don't feel comfortable with it or if you feel like it's going to make you go bananas
1: yeah i agree and 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 that's true of of the next part of olivia's question she asked about like what specific marketing responsibilities authors usually take on versus publishing houses so for this first like so marketing and publicity are technically two different things and they're two different departments within publishing houses uh so marketing is anything that costs money. So like paid advertisements, um, like, you know, those paid advertisements on Goodreads that you see, or um, a lot of times mailers are sent out by marketing, although they can be sent out by publicity as well. So just anything that uh, costs money is often done by the marketing team.
0: Yeah.
1: Anything that is that is free is usually done by publicity. So publicity usually coordinates like our appearances, like if we're invited to to a book event, then they're reaching out to our publicist. Or if it's going to be a social media campaign, then usually that's a publicity team. Publicity does send out mailers sometimes. Oftentimes, it's because they're sending it out to influencers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, I know that publicity also like takes care of coordinating if we're going to be giving interviews. Like my publicist had me go to like Refinery Twenty Nine or do an interview for. Tor.com or Barnes & Noble. So those are all done through publicity. So when an author is doing their own promo, it's more often than not publicity. And because most authors are not necessarily paying a marketer to do marketing things for them, or they're not paying for advertisements, which is on marketing side. We do pay money for things that we do for promo, though, like for our pre-order campaigns, like I paid to get uh, set character cards made like I had original character cards drawn up by the amazing Alex Castellanos and and I also paid for the printing and everything like that, and paid for like the posts postage for it. I know that some people will pay for like bookmarks, and um, I know Clarabel, you had a uh, postcards, right? Um, I had I've had postcards and bookmarks. So in terms of like what promo we do, it, it's the motto of write or die. It depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on if you're front, uh, if, if you're lead title or technically considered mid list. So if you're a lead title, then oftentimes you're, publisher will do the pre-order campaign for you they'll do they'll like make an enamel pin or they'll make character cards or something like that and they'll tweet about it and they'll promo it or they will create mailers to send out with like fancy boxes and swag and things like that they will do a lot of that stuff for you if you're lead title if you aren't then there's a huge chance that they're not going to do something like that for you they still sometimes do stuff like that for midlist um it's but it's rare and it like there I don't have no idea why they decide to do it for some and not for others so oftentimes you will have to take on that responsibility if you want to do it but you don't have to like a pre-order campaign is not required yeah but I, I do see a lot of authors do things that are free which is like uh, giveaways of their arcs, which I guess is not free. You pay postage, but they'll do arc giveaways. They will ask people to, to tag them or use a hashtag. If they post photos of their books, I asked people to use the wicked Fox hashtag if they did anything on instagram just so that i could be able to see it and repost it if they wanted me to things like that are are fairly easy to do so i it's really a lot of i do see a lot of authors do stuff like that
0: i I was also going to say in terms of like who gets what like sometimes an author is like considered midlist and then there's a lot of excitement for the book and the marketing plans and publicity plans sort of shift and change um I've seen that happen to friends where they weren't really getting much in the beginning and then all of a sudden there's like a huge buzz for the book because of like word of mouth in the community and then suddenly there's like a whole bunch of other stuff happening for the book from the publisher side so that can happen too and I will say that I have paid for Instagram ads mostly because I want to learn how they work I haven't paid a lot of money like um, I've maybe total spent about $100 on Instagram ads between like three or four different campaigns. I wanted to sort of look at the data and how it worked and like who it reached and like the age groups and stuff and then like I- I'll share that info with like friends sometimes. And there, I want to also be clear that, like, we're mostly speaking from the perspective of traditionally published authors, because indie authors do all of this stuff, and they're, like, really, really good at it, especially romance authors who are indie authors. They are beasts yeah. with ads. Like, on Facebook, on Instagram, like, they're so good at it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why so many of them do well monetarily, because they've got the, like, groove down and they know what to do. So, so that's one thing. And then for me, it's, it's been interesting because, because I'm with Scholastic and because I have a middle grade, I have the education component as well. So I have marketing and I have a publicist, but then I have, um, education who is traveling to like all these different like library focus and T and educator focus shows. And like my book will be featured like heavily there. Like it was on a banner at Texas library association, which is really cool. And like, they are doing a mailer, but like through the education side of scholastic but they're still sending it to bloggers so it's like it's different for everybody you know it depends and uh because <laughs> my book is middle grade like they focus more on like obviously teachers and parents and librarians because those are the people that are really going to be buying the books for the middle grade uh, students for the most part as opposed to teens and like older people who still read ya yeah it's it depends it depends. That's always our answer for everything. Um, okay. And
1: then we'll try to speed through this next part because uh, we have to get to the interview. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, they, uh, Olivia also asked about us working in publishing and how we do the work-life balance with that. And then asked about how it is the I process with my second contracted book, Different from Wicked Fox. I feel like I've talked about that before, though.
0: Yeah, it's,
1: it's just being on deadline and drafting under deadline is stressful and mm-hmm. the worst ever, but also great because the book is already sold, so you don't have to be like, is it worth it? Um, Cause but, you know yeah. it is
0: guaranteed. It is.
1: It's oh, it's guaranteed worth it. But uh, work life balance, I guess, for it's different from what I did than for what Clarabelle does. Yeah. Just because my day job was as an editor but not just as an editor I did IP and developmental work which meant that I had to use my creative brain so and and that's kind of why I don't necessarily do it anymore just for me personally for like cat show personally I could not handle (laughs) doing both that creative developmental work in my day job and doing it for my author job while debuting I think it could have been different if I had been established as an author already and I got into it, or if I got real got into it and hadn't and wasn't going to debut for a few years. Uh, but because it just coincided, it was literally like the same day I got both offers, pretty much, mm-hmm. like um, almost exactly. So I, I definitely just had to figure out like where I had wanted to put to concentrate my energy on. And because I was contracted to write more books and because writing is my dream, I, I chose the writing, but now I, I do freelance editing and story development on the side. And in terms of that, I just, I, I'm just like constantly reassessing, like, where am I am? Where am I in terms of my writing projects? Do I have time to commit to more freelance stuff? If I don't, I pull back on that. Or if my writing is slower then I reach out to my freelance my freelance people and I'm like hey I'm available for more stuff if you want to schedule me for more stuff Mm -hmm. and then they might so it's just constantly constantly reassessing yourself and your mental capacity to do things it's a lot of me checking in with my inner self but it's worth it for me because I really love both of the things I do
0: yeah um so I'm leaving my job in (laughs) a month or so uh well i already left like it's not like i'm telling like i'm telling the world i quit over <laughs> right or die that this is your two weeks notice, notice. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i quit um like the scene from that thing you do i quit i quit oh yeah i quit i, I quit. quit i quit and then you just walk <laughs> out i take my headphones off and throw them across the room um so uh, the reason i'm leaving though is because of because it's very hard to do work-life balance for me. But also that's because I do like a billion things. I don't just do writing and my day job. I do writing and I have a podcast and I have a graphic design business and I'm trying to expand that to do video courses. And I just feel like I have more potential to make money on my own things than I do at this job. And it's also stressing me out in a way that is making me not wanna be creative anymore. But that's, what, that's not answering the question at all. Um, the, so basically, what I did for the past, you know, seven years, I've basically almost been working here the entire time that I've been writing for, to be published. I would write after work sometimes I would write at work when it was really slow um, and then on weekends so it was basically like my evenings and weekends were all taken up by my writing for a really long time and it wasn't good because I was not giving myself time to do anything else and I kept telling myself this is temporary this is temporary this is temporary until I hit this marker and then that marker would keep shifting right so Mm -hmm. suddenly it was like it wasn't just until I got an agent or just until I got a book deal or just until I finished my first draft of my book on contract. It wasn't any of that. It just kept the goalposts kept moving. And I realized that what had happened was that I trained myself to only work and do nothing else because that's what I got used to. And so then I had to literally untrain my brain. And this didn't happen until pretty much last year when I told myself I have to have I have to first of all have a social life again I can't just be writing all the time um and I also have to have goals that are outside of publishing again because I was becoming like just a book monster like only talking about publishing only caring about publishing and I was getting bored of it and of myself I hated it yeah so um it's why I started lifting because oh, yeah. it was completely different than anything else I was doing, I wanted to be able to see progress in something that had nothing to do with anybody in the publishing world and was just about me and my body. And it's been the best thing, I've been a lot less stressed out about book stuff since I started taking a new approach. I'm happier. I will say I'm not as disciplined as I was before, but I'm still getting my work done. And I think that's what matters. I'm I'm, a re- I'm really hard on myself. So when it comes to work-life balance, I have to be really careful because it's really easy for me to convince myself like everyone else has to sort of deal with the fact that I'm making these sacrifices for my life. And meanwhile, I'm like neglecting my family and friends. So I think some of that sacrifice is justified, but when you're only doing book stuff, when you're only writing, then it becomes unhealthy. And that's why I always, like, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but on the show, I push back a lot against, like, the need to be constantly productive because of it, because it can so easily become toxic. Like, don't be productive sometimes. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay, and it's normal, and it's healthy, and you need those breaks in order to refill your creative well and also just because you're a human being it has nothing to do with your books or your creative well like you just need rest sometimes and you just need to do other stuff so yeah i don't even know if i answered the question but that's all what i have to say about it
1: (laughs) (laughs) there are people that i know who are able to work in publishing and publish their books at the same time it's not like it's an impossible thing to do. I think it's more like understanding yourself and also timing. Yeah. Because I I think that uh, you know when it when it comes to getting into both publishing and getting into being an author, they're both such time consuming things in the front end that with no guarantee of payout too that it can be really exhausting and it can really drain you emotionally and mentally. So, you know, it all depends on what you're capable of and your support system. So I, we're definitely not saying don't do it. We're just letting you know what our experiences were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm I'm really happy being able to still edit. But it just happens that editing is something that you can do freelancing. And I really lucked out with that. It's different for everybody. I mean, we have friends who like work in publishing, but on less creative sides, like in mm-hmm. production or in contracts, and they're super duper happy and don't look like they're going anywhere. But they're also being published, and so it's it's really different for everybody. Yep. Okay. Final, final, final question, which will be really fast. Are could we start a critique partner matchup? We could.
0: Um, uh. Yeah. If people really want it. We could start a thread in the Facebook group. Yep. Absolutely. Just join the Facebook group, and we'll make like a document or some things so people can find each other in there. Yeah.
1: Cool. 18-year-old Goom Myung has a secret. She's a Gumiho, a nine-tailed fox who must devour the energy of men in order to survive. Because so few believe in the old tales anymore, and with so many evil men no one will miss, the modern city of Seoul is the perfect place to hide and hunt. Myung's life is upended when she kills a Tokebi, a murderous goblin, just to save the life of a human boy. But after Myung saves Jihoon's life, the two develop a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Myung to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and Korean dramas. It's been called a vibrant debut novel that employs the Korean genre's conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly, and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox is out now from Penguin Random House and is available wherever books are sold. This week's guest is Nafisa Azad. She was born in Fiji and spent the first 17 years of her life as a self-styled Pacific Islander. Now, now she identifies as an Indo-Fijian Muslim Canadian. Whew, okay, I hope I caught all of those out. Which means she is often navigating multiple identities. Nafisa has a love for languages and currently speaks four. She holds a Master's of Arts degree in Children's Literature from the University of British Columbia and co runs the Book Wars at thebookwars.ca. Is that how you say it? Thebookwars.ca? Okay. Yep. I've never had to say that kind of URL before. <laughs> it's a website dedicated to all children's literature. Nafisa currently lives in British Columbia with her family. Hi,
2: Na-
0: Hi Nafi. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. I hope you guys are doing good as
0: well. Yes, Yes, we're we're good. Yeah. All right, Nafi. So we want to know all about your publishing journey, how you first started uh, writing, got your first agent, your book deal. Just tell us all. All right. So
2: um, I've been writing forever, as as, um, I guess I believe most writers would answer. So first of all, it was just an ephemeral, you know, expression of your own, um, you know, Adolescent fantasies and ideas and angst—they manifested as really bad poetry, which you would never share with anyone now, but thought <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry to the teacher whom I subjected to very bad poetry because I thought it was ma- a masterpiece. <laughs> so yeah, I've been I've been writing for uh, forever. It's just that I never knew whether I want if I wanted to do it I'm um, seriously because as a child of immigrants. I was told that I had to go get into something that would pay and that it was secure, and obviously writing isn't because there's no guarantee of selling, and even if you sell, you there's no guarantee of being popular enough to sell again. So I I remember sitting in a, a bio class. It was in college. I was majoring in biology. I was pre med, and I, for some reason I was sitting in this. Uh, class about fungi and we were discussing mycelia which is which are parts of a fungus and I was sitting there and I was like what the hell am I doing with my life I hate this yeah. so, so I, I went home that afternoon and I changed my major to um, writing sorry um to english literature and all of a sudden school became so much more fun and so much easier but the sad thing is i did organic biochemistry twice <laughs> before i got to this point no that was <laughs> the most beautiful summers of my life anyway so uh after i finished my bachelor of arts I didn't know what to do with my life, as you know, as is usual with the rest of uh, um, college grads. So I decided to apply to one um, postgrad. So I got into Masters of Arts in Children's Literature, which was surprised to me because I didn't expect to get in, but that was honestly life-changing because it was a very small program there were only about 10 of us in that program we were known as the unicorns because there were so few of us and we were part of the school of library sciences so one of the things that you could do in the program was write a novel as your thesis that was a creative novel, creative thesis now i decided to do that but there was this one of the professors was supposed to be my um thesis supervisor, she told me that I couldn't do it, <laughs> that she was afraid that I wouldn't be able to um, finish my degree should I decide to write a novel and I'm the kind of person who when I'm told that I can't do something I will absolutely make sure that I can, so yes. I came home I and this. you know yeah, I was. Uh, it took me two hours to return home because my uh, university is two hours away by transit, so I came home crying on the transit, my mom's like what's wrong oh, with no. you, I was like, no, Mister." good? do I could do it and then I my mom's like why are you crying be angry
0: (laughs) good I'm with your mom (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) so I got angry and I did I I wrote uh, a creative writing I wrote it in like five months because I was so angry I was like how dare she tell me I can't do it So, but the, the thesis supervisor I did end up with, she was amazing. She, um, her name is Maggie Davies. She's a, an editor as well, and she told me the the way she walked me through the writing journey was very intense. And she basically taught me how to write a book, how to get from A to Z and all the ways you can fail in the middle. I did fail. (laughs) There were some intense conversations and her putting me on the spot about some of my uh, writerly decisions. But it was a a good uh, journey. And after I was done, I was left with a manuscript and I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. So I decided to query and obviously me being me didn't do any, what do you call it? A research before I started, decided to query, so I wrote a bunch of query letters after I read about them in, on the internet. And then the night before DV Pit happened, I found out that there was such a, a thing as the, mm-hmm. and my eyes grew wide, and I thought maybe I should try. I mean, it's a long shot, but who knows? It might work. So in three hours, I came up with three different pitches, and I was like, well, whatever, I'll just try it. And it just so happened that that week was the last week I had before. What happens is that if you write a creative writing thesis, you get a year's deferral before it's posted to the huge website where all theses are published. And I knew that once my, my thesis went up on that website, my chances of getting getting that manuscript published would be very low because nobody wants something that has already been published, right? So I decided to try and I... There were a, there were quite a few number a number of agents who decided that they liked the sound of my pitch. I went querying away again, and I actually talked to Caitlin because she was one of the first. She, like she read insanely fast. She had had the manuscript read in like a day, and then she called. We had a talk, and then I was <laughs> okay. I confess, I went up to their website and I th- saw that they were um, that they represented Milena Marchetta who mm-hmm. i absolutely adore. I, mean, mm-hmm. I was like, well, i can maybe breathe the same air she does if i go with these people, but then i genuinely liked Caitlin and i, I felt that she was more excited about my characters than i was, which was amazing because i didn't think that anyone would be would see um, my work that clearly. So, i signed with her. It was, this happened like you know in an of over a period of of the weekend, so it was very quick, and then I got my uh, deferral, Thank goodness. So, so after a few revisions, we went on submission with well, the Road of the Lost, which was the name of uh, my first book, but my th- thesis novel. Unfortunately, that book, it's because the editors couldn't decide if it was uh, middle grade or it was young adult, or mm-hmm. what it was, because the main character grows so. Uh, vastly from the beginning to the end, mm-hmm. which was the point. But because they couldn't categorize it, they weren't able to. I wasn't able to sell it. And then November 2016 happened. Oh God! <laughs> those, yeah, those dark days, and I life was so unbearable that I thought, you know what? Screw this! I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so I wrote the Candle and the Flame, and. With it, that, that was like, it took me about six months to write, six to seven months to write. And then once I had written it, I was very proud of myself because I thought it was amazing. Then I sent it to, it, it sent it to Caitlin. She was like, yeah, I like it, but, um, and then there's the dot, 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 you know, when it comes to, to the edits and I ended up rewriting the entire thing. And now I'm very ashamed of the first draft because, oh my God, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> there's some parts of it that are. Absolutely horrendous, <laughs> but I rewrote it, and then I sent it out again we uh, we submitted it, and it took about t- three months before it sold so that was it was not quite painless, but it wasn't very painful either, so I felt like I feel like I've had a relatively smooth journey mm-hmm. I, I mean there weren't any wrenches torn into the whole process though i did I believe I did ha- have like my revisions after the book sold one or two weeks and I was extremely freaked out by the length of time I was I received to revise the entire book so other than that yeah it was pretty
0: smooth yeah it's it's interesting to me how um how many writers have come on here and have been affected by the elections so many like there's two things I feel like that people have the most in common writing fanfic and their life being upended by that election. Mm-hmm. Like so mm-hmm. many of us sort of like made big decisions or like had mental nervous breakdowns during that time. It sucks, but it's also like, ah, solidarity. We were all yeah. in it together and we all, we're all still here. So, yeah. and another thing that I found really um interesting was that you're, a professor tried to sort of discourage you from 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 doing yep. what you wanted to do, and that I've I've heard that happen with a lot of people of color as well. Yes, um, um, it it actually happened to me with my journalism professor. Mm-hmm. She tried to discourage me from dropping the class like two weeks in for wow. no reason. Wow, um, I wasn't doing badly. She was just mm-hmm. like, I don't think you have what it takes but I'm a little bit of your mom because I was like, I'll show that bitch who has what it takes. (laughs) It's it's funny
2: because there's this whole thing because they are in the MFA. Like there were, she was uh, part of the MFA, the master of arts and fine arts. And, um, so there's this whole thing going on where I feel like there's a lot of snobbery and elitism going on. Where oh, they, big time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So they didn't think that we had what it takes.
1: And I'm like, yeah, I'm one of the few people published from your group. So, ha. <laughs> ha. Take <laughs> that. You should have you had your publisher send her an ARC. No, <laughs>
2: oh, I, sh- I refuse to give her Give her like my work. She can just look up. I actually saw her. It was. This is really insane. I went to uh, an anniversary of my um, the the Master of Arts program that I was part uh, I attended, and she was
1: there and she pretended that she didn't know me. You know, it was it was hilarious. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: It's and the thing is is that like if there's there's a part of me that's like oh maybe some of these professors are like genuinely worried about us as like creators of color and are like I don't want you to be hurt by this industry because the industry like does does you dirty. And I could kind of see that as maybe being a reason. But then why would it? Would you be too embarrassed to talk to me when you see me later? It's because you didn't, yep. didn't mean well. It's because you mm. actually were kind of being a jerk.
2: <laughs> yeah, yep. no, she just didn't want to supervise any more MACL uh, students. So she, because she didn't want to do it, she she was actively
1: persuading me not to write. That sucks. I'm so sorry yeah. that you oh. had so, an authority figure like that in your life. But I'm glad you
2: persevered. I, I feel like I owe her for my success because she just made me so angry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's so true, though. Because, like, I sometimes I feel that with, like, publishing in general. I'm like, oh, do you want me to only write about my pain? I'm going to write yeah. about cake <laughs> <Like>, cloth. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But... Your book itself is so interesting and, and I feel like it actually kind of like represents a, a bunch of different aspects of your own identity because it's it not only has like a Muslim main character, but it also takes place on a city of people who live along the Silk Road, like a fantasy version of the Silk Road. So it feels like a mix of different influences and cultures, which like just from your – even if I didn't know you, like you're – bio itself is such an interesting mix of different experiences and identities and I was just wondering like how much of that mix did you write into it or how much of it were you inspired by for your book?
2: I think when I went I went not do I I know that when I went into writing the book I was I actively decided that I would create a place where um, everyone could find a home in because I was so sick of all the rhetoric on the media, on the media social media as well as uh, the uh, traditional media about uh, how awful minorities are and how, you know, with, with the elections and, and the YouTube comments and everything just felt so overwhelming. So, I, it, was, it was what I grew up with because I grew up in Fiji and it's, uh, Fiji is super multicultural. So I wanted to take that aspect and then create it into a world where, as I said, everyone was uh, um, had a part or had a place to belong to. Mm. So
1: I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. No, that definitely does. And like you build such a vibrant city. It's Mm -hmm. definitely one of those books where like the setting feels like a character in itself, Mm -hmm. which I really love.
0: And, you know, they were super wrong because the candle in the flame was a finalist for more sword <laughs> just saying just saying
1: yeah i mean that was gonna be our next question was gonna be like <laughs> how did that feel like how, how did you get the news for that
2: oh my goodness i was I, you could have knocked me over with a feather i was so shocked because i had been talking to scholastic and they had just uh, rejected all my um proposals so i was like okay yeah. They had said that uh, my sales weren't enough, and I was just felt that okay, maybe the professor had something going for her. So when I got the news, I was uh, at first I was disbelieving because I mean, like maybe they made a mistake. So I kept on waiting for a follow-up uh, email. I was like, "Sorry, we got it. what you got the wrong author or something." <laughs> but it, it was—I don't know if I'm still—I have, have come to terms with being a, Mo- a Morris finalist because the honor, it's, it's such a big honor, so yeah.
0: Well, you better come to terms with it because the sticker's <laughs> on the book and it's real. Yeah. Oh, actually, okay? no. The sticker's
2: not going away. <laughs> They're not going to place the sticker, apparently.
1: Why? What? Because... I will go to every bookstore and put a sticker on every single candle the
0: <laughs> book, I swear to God.
2: <laughs> because apparently it's too expensive. Oh uh,
0: Well, on the ALA website, it's there, so. Uh,
1: yeah, I know. As long as I know. <laughs> <laughs> we all know. And all of our listeners know. And if you are a listener of Ride or Die and you see a copy of The Candle in the Flame, you have to hold it up and go, This is a Morris Award finalist to anyone who's around you. <laughs> it's a rule now. Yeah. But no, that's so great. And you know, at the I think that sometimes it really sucks because we do get a lot of discouraging news, especially like it's so sad that, you know, your your publisher wasn't interested in any of your option ideas. But sometimes we do have these beacons of hope that like, yeah, people are reading our books and they are yeah. worth it. And it's good to know that.
2: No, definitely, because I could have easily it for the white gaze, but I, I, I chose, I intentionally chose to not write it. I chose not to um, explain any of the foreign words that I used and that was for a reason because I wrote it for all the Brown girls who don't get to see themselves in fiction and fant- fantasy, especially who don't get to see their stories celebrated, their ways of lives primarized. So that's, I I'm, I'm proud of the book and that's what like the most I could ask for. That's
0: great. You should, you should be proud of it. And I think it takes a lot of courage to to write your truth in that way and to not sort of write for the white gaze because I think all of us know that if we did that, we could do a lot better in Mm -hmm. our careers because that's who is in charge of publishing and that's who publishing caters to. So anyway, let's stop being salty. Um, (laughs) For people who don't know um, what your book, the candle and the flame is about. Can you just give us a quick, uh, little summary the elevator pitch okay yeah. let's, let's see if I remember <laughs> okay the candle
2: and the flame <laughs> is about Fatima who lives in Noor who works as a messenger in, in Noor a city located on the border between a forest and the desert and the city is ruled by a human maharaja, a king, and uh, the ifrit jinn, jinn who are dedicated to logic and reason. When Fatima witnesses the death of her mentor, of an uh, ifrit by the name of Firdos, her life is turned upside down, and she finds that she has uh, inherited a great power and that she contains uh, a, a jinn fire. To save the people she loves and the city she lives in, Fatima has to come to terms with the way she has changed, and and uh, come to terms with the fire burning within her. And I have totally messed that up, but I got the major points correct.
1: <laughs> that was great. I love I love hearing you talk about your book. I like when you like kind of explain all the relationships and stuff. I'm like, ooh, what do they like? <laughs> Yeah, I'm I mean, like, full disclosure to everyone, Nafi and I are in, like, a very small group chat where we have, like, a brainstorm channel, and it's just every once in a while, somebody will be like, what do you think of this idea? And it's like two sentences, and we're all, like, dying and melting because it's so exciting. So we do that a lot to each other. Especially <laughs> it's nice. the kiss oh <laughs> Hey, hey,
0: Calm down. <laughs> For Lucelli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Lucelli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head on and reverse the curse to save the town and Lucelli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco, an action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabelle A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad, coming April 7th, 2020 from Scholastic. Pre-order today at buyghostsquad.com.
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about... about the the book wars because that's kind of a review ish type of site where you talk about books, correct?
2: Oh, mm-hmm. it, it used to be, but I feel like a lot of us. Um, I started I started with my colleagues from the master of uh, my uh, master's program because we were all sort of dedicated to children's lit. But it has been a while since we've updated because life it happens to all of us. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was mostly a. Um, website dedicated to reviews, but in the sense that these are academic reviews done by people who actually study children's literature. So they're more academic in tone than the usual book review site. Okay. Yeah.
1: So what was it like going from talking about books, like in an academic sense, like to review them to Mm -hmm. like being the person who writes the books?
2: Okay. So let me relate this anecdote i i have a friend called janet who is an amazing and very smart person so i sent her the first uh, few chapters of the Candle and the flame the first draft and she read it and then she was like the visa we have a problem and i'm like i don't like the sound of that <laughs> so um apparently um she had she found Zulfikar, the love interest or the or the djinn, um one of the main characters in the Candle and the Flame, to be problematic in the way I had portrayed him because she told me that he um, was very um, aggressive and in a toxic masculinity sort of way, and I was a cast. I was like, how how could you accuse me of doing that? I'm such a feminist. And she's like, calm <laughs> down. <laughs> Now, Jen is the kind of person who is very, like, she's very gentle. So she, basically, she sat me down and then she went over my entire chapter, word by word, sentence by sentence, pointing out the subtext and what I may have said even without intending to. And at the end of it, I was very ashamed. And because she was right, I had not realized what I had um, written because I was so unaware of what the... Uh, what I was saying between the lines, what what uh, my book mm. was uh, not speaking um, explicitly but saying implicitly. So uh-huh. okay. uh, that experience worked in two ways. First, it made um, the Jin um, community a matriarchal instead of the, the patriarchal as I had. Uh, initially planned it to be and secondly it made me more aware I put on my academic brain as well when I was writing so I was aware of both what I was writing and what the subtext was saying so I was giving it a close reading as I was writing it which which was uh, an interesting uh, experience because usually like you either have a writer's brain or you have an academic brain so this time I had both and it was very exhausting, but I feel like oh. in, in the in the end it it, it walked out. Yeah,
1: well, we all mean, Yeah,
2: yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: It's obviously no. I was gonna say it's like obviously a very thoughtful book. Like it's it it reads like each element is done very deliberately, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed because I it made me have trust in you as a writer. But it's also hard because we're writing in some ways, escapist mm-hmm. fantasy. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're writing young adult fantasy, and, and we want people to be able to kind of, like, go and have an adventure with our characters. Uh, but I think we're at a time now where we're kind of aware that some of the things that are considered entertainment actually can be harmful. Yes. Especially to minority groups. So... I don't think it does any harm to be aware of, like, every single aspect of your story. And I think at the end of the day, it definitely made it a stronger story because mm-hmm. I know that I can recommend The Candle in to anybody and that they can all equally enjoy it and lose themselves in it and that you put thought into it so that it wouldn't hurt anybody,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is an important thing in this day and age. So. Yeah.
2: I mean, we all need a friend like Janet who's not afraid to, you know, sit you down and tell you exactly how <laughs> This
1: I mean, that's totally true. I had moments like where I was going into like copy edits and I learned like a new thing like um, that a certain phrase is ableist and we use it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to do control F and find all of like those phrases because I know I used it at least once. Mm-hmm. And it really sucks because I think you can justify it yourself right you can say like oh it's going to copy edits like I can't do anything about it this time like but no you can at least try Mm -hmm. exactly and there are a lot of authors who have like books that have been out for like a year and they find out after the fact and they contact their editor or their publisher and they're like hey for future printings you know can you get rid of this word
0: that happened with Dumplin'.
1: yeah
2: oh Mm -hmm. really
0: yeah um so julie murphy had put um spirit animal in the (laughs) original Uh, um uh sort of printing of the book and then like you know obviously that wasn't okay and like later on like she issued an apology and they um took it out of any future reprintings
2: i'm glad that she stood up
0: yeah yeah and she was very public about it as well Mm -hmm. which is is good i think it's good to sort of like own up to it and like just sort of like apologize in a very like in Like with an actual apology, not like, you know, one of those sorry, passive aggressive it. things. <laughs> yeah, no, she did a really good job. So so everyone who's on the podcast tells us either their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. So you can pick either or you can do both of them. It's up to you.
2: I, I mean, I, I try to think of something very embarrassing, but maybe it's because I live all the way in British Columbia and I... You know, even if I do embarrass myself, I still have the um, grace of being
0: far away. <laughs> <laughs> so you can escape I, from everyone, I basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: I don't have to face anyone. But um, so I don't really have. A, there's still, there's still time for me to uh, be part of a most embarrassing moment. But <laughs> I do have one. Like as I said before, I. Did zero research. I I wish I had known that there are so many resources available for people who were trying who were um, pursuing publication because I just waited in blindly. I didn't talk to other people. I just re- wrote um, query letters randomly and sent it to, to people randomly. And yeah, so I wish I had known that there were so many resources I could have. Um, 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 uh, used and uh, people I could have talked to so anyone who's pursuing publishing just talk to people talk to other people because you will have a community and you will have people who will back you up and you know pat your back in times of rejection of which there will be many <laughs>
0: yeah yes there will be truer there words be have many. never been even spoken. if you
2: Yeah, even if once, you know, and and I wish I knew after being published, because I, for some reason, I assumed that as soon as you were published, you had made it, and that was like, you were successful. And then once you, and then when you do get published, and when it did get published, I realized, no, the road is still long, and the obstacles are still there, and you still have to strive on. So whoever said that debut year is supposed to be the most glorious year, I would like to talk to them because
0: <laughs> <laughs> they
2: that's false advertising. That was the most stressful year of my life. Oh, my God. Yeah, Who oh said God. that?
0: Because all I hear is that it's supposed to be the worst ever. Maybe people got, like, they wised up and they're like, well, we shouldn't say this anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they they because... used to say it and then we were like,
0: no, stop it. No, like, Never mind. Like the
2: anxiety level. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm so glad it's done.
0: <laughs> well, thanks a lot. It's not like it's my debut year, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, Clarabelle. but you I'm totally
2: well. Like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm like, a demon. No, but it's
1: not for <laughs> like you, Clarabelle. It's not you.
2: Yeah, I mean, come on now. You just had this amazing news come out about the
0: movie option. Oh yeah, that. Congratulations, uh-huh. by the way. I, thank you, thank you very much. I yeah. can't wait. I hope yeah. it becomes a success because oh, me, me we too. need
2: we need movies, we need more media that uh, focuses on POC kids,
0: especially Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, especially yeah. Dominican. It like doesn't exist, so <laughs> yeah. that would be really cool. So Nafi, can you let everyone know where they can.
1: Find you on the internet. Oh,
2: I am a unicorn. You don't find me. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's I, a ghost. <laughs> yes, I actually. Um, I'm mostly on Instagram at Nafiza as which is N A F I Z A A Z, or Twitter, which is Nafiza, which is N A F I Z A A. So I don't really have a website because I don't really like... You know, it's weird. Before I got published, I used to be so gung-ho about uh, blogging and stuff. Yeah. But after I got published, I feel like I have to keep myself to myself a lot now. I don't know why. There was a change, but I f- became a lot more introverted, which was I didn't think it was possible
0: after I got published. I think it, I think it makes sense because more people have dumb opinions, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought that the tweet that I said Joaquin Phoenix and Joker looked like Lord Farquaad was going to go viral, but it did. <laughs> and I got some of the most annoying uh, response. That's super muted now, so yeah. you guys can say whatever you want. I will never see it. Um, <laughs> um, so, Nafisa, thank you so much for coming on Ride or Die. It was so much fun talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to Red or Die. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, and while you're at it, be sure to pick up Wicked Fox by me, Cat Cho, and Ghost Squad by Clarival A. Ortega. See you next time, wordies.
0: And don't forget to spread the word.